Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about wet stuff. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Hello. Yeah, welcome to season five, everyone. Season five? Oh, what? Yeah. How are we here? I know, it's amazing. It's great. And today we have a special guest host with us, uh, Johanna Sandstrom. Johanna, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm Johanna Sandstrom and I'm an objects conservator based in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> I currently work at the Nordic Museum, which is a kind of Scandinavian lifestyle museum. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Very exciting to have you with us. Yes. Uh, should we do uh, a bit of news first? Yeah, let's do some news. I think uh, it's mainly Christina and you that have news, isn't well, it? Well, I mean, this is not news so much as it is adjacent to the actual topic. <laughs> I just wanted to say that the WOM, so that's Wet Organic Archaeological Material Conference, the 14th one, in fact, uh, is happening in Portsmouth in the UK this year. And it's between the 20th and 24th of May. And you can still register as this, as this episode is out. So registration is open until April. April 19th. So if anyone feels particularly inspired by this episode to go to a conference entirely about wet soggy stuff, <laughs> then you can. I just wanted to put that out there. So yeah. Okay, carry on. Who else has news? A quick heads up that, and you may already know this if you follow us on social media, but if you don't, a quick heads up that the panel discussion that we took part in the ICON town hall discussion about diversity and conservation is available to download. Uh, and you can either watch the Facebook Live thing on the ICON Facebook page, or you can better still download it as a podcast from our website. Uh, and I think the sound quality is better on the podcast, so I'd go for that personally, unless you particularly want to see what we look like. Yeah, just watch us all squirm slightly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we're stunning, but, you know, sound quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for the podcast version. <laughs> I've got a couple of other bits of news as oh, well, good. although they may not be very news, new news by the time this is released. Um, we're recording this on the 3rd of March, by the way. One of them is that we finally got some resolution about the Camberwell College Paper Conservation MA mm. course. And yeah. it was announced last week that that sadly is going to close. So this has been kind of rumbling on since 2017 when they shut the course. It was a two-year MA course and they shut it to new entrants. And the university asked the people running the course to have a look at shortening it, basically, um, from a two-year course to a one-year course, <laughs> 45 weeks, because it was one of the most expensive courses that the university ran. And unfortunately, this is a very common theme with universities. This is what we saw when TCC shut about 10 years ago. And this is what we've seen with other courses as well. Durham, um, UCL, they've all come under pressure before for just basically being too expensive. Um, the other thing is that the people running the Campbell World course were under pressure to increase student numbers as well. And there was a couple of statements put out by ICON saying there was a concern that actually the labour market wasn't going to be able to absorb the large numbers of graduates yeah. coming out of this course and also that um, they were concerned about standards of training if the time available for training was cut so dramatically. Anyway, this has all come to an end and it was announced last week that the uh, that Campbell is in the process of shutting down the course and we don't really know any more about that but ICON Book and Paper Group are very involved with this and so if you want to know more about that then um, they're probably the people 
who will have the information. So a very sad piece of news. My other piece of news, which is uh, possibly a bit more cheerful, is that AIC, the American Institute for Conservation, has rebranded and relaunched their website. Oh, yeah. And so they, <laughs> AIC came out of IIC, the International Institute for Conservation, which has a number of regional groups. And AIC was originally one of those regional groups and then became an independent organization representing conservators in the US. But because of these links with IIC, it had this rather cumbersome name originally. It was actually technically called the American Institute for Conservation of Historic and Artistic Works. And they've decided that because everybody just called it AIC anyway, it's now just called the American Institute for Conservation, which is far easier. And the foundation that they have as well is now called the Foundation for Advancement in Conservation. They've got a shiny new logo and a new website, which you can find at culturalheritage.org. So go and check that out. Excellent. Good piece of news. And bad piece of news. Uh, Yeah, the first one. But thanks for ending on the good one. Yeah. And then a good piece of news. I had three pieces of news and I did it like the... Uh, a pocketful one I like the legendary shit sandwich thing yeah, I'm supposed to do. So, yay. Oh, yay. Yeah. Yay. yeah. Well Great. done. That was very good. Excellent managerial skills there. Yes. <laughs> right, soggy wet stuff. Yeah, we're talking about wet stuff today. Now, my personal experience of wet stuff was limited pretty much to what we did at university. Yeah, same. I've got nothing to add. Add me. <laughs> yeah, so, but just to run through, what did we do at university? Because at the time when you and I went, Chloe, mm-hmm. we were at Cardiff Uni. Then we got... With Johanna. Yes, that's <laughs> Yeah. Uh, then we got a piece of the Newport chip at the time. Um, we did. We got a bit each, which I always thought was hilarious, even though obviously there are loads of pegs. So oh, yeah, it yeah. shouldn't really so it's be just funny like that they were just sm- giving out. A small part, uh, like, you know, just a peg. <laughs> and that's not a euphemism or anything. It was just a wooden peg. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that's uh, that we each got one. And then we had to research the kind of treatments that would be Mm -hmm. suitable for Mm -hmm. it so that we could do like a really small scale intervention on waterlogged stuff which was to be fair a genius idea Mm -hmm. because you know that's that's fantastic it needed doing um Uh it was a really useful experience and it taught me that i'm not interested in wet stuff (laughs) uh, which is also fine i really liked it and then we did leather the year after and i didn't get to do leather you didn't get to do no i didn't get to do leather i really enjoyed leather because i had a shoe sole and um i had a moment where it came out the freeze dryer and i freaked out for like two minutes because I thought that I'd ruined it but actually it had just shrunk to the shape of a shoe sole and that it oh, was all see, beautifully yes, formed and shoe. yeah but what I did find amusing is maybe you, you found this as well Johanna that you go through this and now you will research what all the different things that you can do with it but actually you're not going to do any of those things you're, you're just going to do what <laughs> everyone does and that's peg or glitter I, yeah I, I, think, I think that was possibly why I hated that exercise because I was really interested in some of the slightly more esoteric ones I really wanted to do a soup gross treatment oh, yeah. uh, and then everyone was like you have to do it the same way and we're all using peg and i was like oh <laughs> the disappointment of but i wanted to be a rebel a sugar-based rebel <laughs> but it, yeah i mean there are obviously loads of drawbacks as well i mean there are pros and cons to all of these different treatments um mm-hmm. and i can't remember any of them offhand because this was years ago at this point but i do remember being like stubbornly disappointed that oh 
I didn't want to do that I one. I wanted to do something different. Yeah, I just wanted to be different. So how about you, Christina, before we start asking about Johanna's experience? Oh, <laughs> I trained at UCL at the Institute of Archaeology, where the course was called Conservation for Archaeology and Museums. And so even the least archaeological of us was forced to do something along those lines. And I spent, I think, two days at the Museum of London uh, freeze-drying leather shoe soles, Ooh. Chloe. <laughs> very very similar um cleaning them up glycerol treatment Mm -hmm. freeze-drying i mean i think it was really good to have done that because it gave me an understanding of the processes and the issues involved having said that i then went off to do my internship working exclusively on ancient egyptian material which is at the other end of the spectrum being very desiccated in some cases and so lots of dry organics and i have never dealt with freshly excavated european material I've, I've had stuff that's fairly recently excavated from elsewhere but i since then i haven't had any freshly excavated european material no waterlogged stuff nothing so i'm 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 not sure i'm gonna have anything of any sense to say in this in this episode what can you tell us about your experience with waterlogged materials uh yeah so i have a bachelor from cardiff university i did the same thing as you two did with the leather and the tree nails from the newport ship and i have always had some sort of morbid fascination with shipwrecks so kind of had an interest in that going into those exercises and then I was just I don't know hugely fascinated working with leather shoes when you can actually piece some hundreds of years old soggy bits of leather into something that actually looks like a shoe yeah I thought that was awesome and decided I wanted to give it a shot to work with waterlogged organics so what did you do I contacted the Vasa Museum and asked if I could do a placement there. And they said, sorry, we don't have time this year. Oh, no. So many people will be going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did that as well with this museum. (laughs) Yeah. But I met two lovely conservators there and I got to visit them and do a little behind the scenes tour with them in the summer of my first year and uh, kept in touch with them. And the year after, they did have time to give me a month internship at the Vasa and I also did an internship at the Mary Rose the same summer excellent oh fabulous I remember you doing that just, actually really interesting just all the big ships in one go <laughs> exactly and then after graduation I ended up getting a job at the Mary Rose nice. about half a year after graduating and I worked there for two and a half years with big bits of wet wood. Oh, brilliant. When you say big bits, because I haven't personally been to the Mary Rose. I've been to the Vasa, but not to the Mary Rose. How big is big? The Mary Rose wreck itself is about 40 meters long, if I... Okay, that, that's pretty huge. It's pretty huge, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So you've got the, you had the, um, the huge freeze dryers there, didn't you? What size were those? Um, I think the biggest one was six meters long and two meters inside height, inside height. Oh my God. Wow. That's crazy big. See, I've seen photos, but I never really realized. But after I worked at the Mary Rose, I worked for a year at the Danish National Museum's conservation unit for wet organic archaeological materials, where they have an eight meter long freeze dryer. Are you just Which is even bigger. Are you on your search to work for the, the biggest gonna, one? I was going to say, are you just on a tour of the largest freeze dryers in Europe? Because it sounds like it. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's See, amazing. Those I try. Fill me with dread because you can get inside them, and obviously you Does can get inside pretty small freeze dryers if you think about it. Yeah, I do. I don't know. I just have this like 
almost James Bond film, like, like you're gonna horror be of, of a trapping situation. Yeah, very nice. But then I also feel like that about like anoxic, anoxic um, oxygen removal. Oh yeah, things yeah. for for like That's plastic fair. stores and stuff. So I suppose like anywhere where you, the the oxygen is removed and there's a vacuum is just blah, no, thank you. <laughs> So you no never kid. got stuck inside one, which is good. Yeah, that's good. Health and safe. But we did have to climb around in them pretty regularly because you've got to get in there and put the objects in there all the yeah, way in six course. meters or eight meters in. I mean, with freeze drying that I've encountered, there's a lot of weighing it to figure out when it's done. Surely you can't do that with a really truck-sized piece of timber. <laughs> Can no. You? No. <laughs> it's, a, it's more of Not a calculation, really. like it's probably going to take this long or... Yeah. Pretty much. It's probably going to take this long. In Denmark, they had uh, temperature sensors in probes they put into the objects. And you can kind of, I'm not entirely sure how this works technically, but you can kind of tell from a temperature change in the object when it's dry. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. so cool. I have huge envy that you, you've been to Vasa and you've worked there. That's amazing. That's so cool. I have, Yes, I have also worked at the Vasa for a year, yeah, most recently. Badass. So if, if people Indeed. are unaware, Vasa is a huge ship uh, that has its own museum in Sweden. And in fact, I'm going to do a little review of a book about that later. But we'll get to that at the end of the episode. What, did, what were you doing at the Vasa? Well, the job I had in Denmark was a one-year contract. Mm-hmm. And since I'd gotten to know the conservators at the Vasa, they kind of knew what I was up to when my contract was ending. And they have two conservators at the Vasa. So in the summer of 2017, I guess it must have been, both of them were on leave for a year and asked me if I could step in and just fill the role Ooh. there. Oh, brilliant. That is fabulous. What what a thing to be asked. Okay, so yeah, when I worked at the Vasa Museum, I, uh, well, the Vasa isn't wet and soggy anymore. It's no. been dry for a very long time. <laughs> I was basically looking at all the things around the Vasa, like the object and the treatments. It was, a lot of this was conserved in the 60s, mm. 70s. Oh, wow. And I just looked at how these treatments have aged. Mm. Because it was like in the beginning of using PEG for conservation treatment and there was some experimental stuff going on. Like freeze drying wasn't commonly used back then. So a lot of the objects are just uh, heavily PEG impregnated and freeze Mm. and uh, air dried. Oh, wow. Speaking of wooden things and how to look after them, I do believe that we have an excellent interview on the topic. What do you say, Christina? Uh, Yeah, um, I spoke to Mags Felter, who's the senior conservator at York Archaeological Trust. Um, who deal with, among other things, a lot of waterlogged materials. Um, I have actually known Mags since I started training as a conservator, and we used to share a bench together um, in the lab. <laughs> and it was pretty clear, even from the earliest days, that Mags was going to go and work on waterlogged stuff, I think. And so she has. So have a listen to this. My name's Mags Felter. I work at York Archaeological Trust. I've been here for the last 15 years and um, I'm currently working as senior conservator in the conservation department. So York Archaeological Trust is an independent charity, but also with an arm of archaeological work. So uh, yeah, does a whole do uh, archaeological exploration and, and interventions in a sort of commercial archaeological side of things. And then we as a conservation lab are slightly sitting alongside that in that we conserve and look after material that is dug up through our own excavations. But we're also a commercial outfit so that we, we take in work from all over the country 
as a conservation lab, we have a bit of a specialism in waterlogged organic material. And we have a lot of equipment and, and resources that, that sort of allow us to treat large waterlogged organic materials. We have a lot of freeze dryers and tank provision, uh, etc. So that's kind of our, our main specialism. But we also deal with, well, any archaeological materials that come out the ground, really. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Yet also run the Jorvik Centre, the Viking Centre. Mm. So we also have responsibility for looking after the material that's on display there and in several other display areas in York, including Barley Hall and uh, something called Dig, which is a, a sort of an archaeological adventure for kids, which has a little display area as well. We have sort of quite a wide remit, really. Mm. So I thought we could talk a bit about the waterlogged stuff today. Mm. What is it that interests you about waterlogged material? Well, it's just, it's really great, the material, because because it's so rare, really. You know, you only get this material surviving, um, in this country at least, in, in waterlogged anoxic conditions. So mm. the things you get is stuff that you don't normally see on normal excavations. So, you know, you get your leather and your, your wood artifacts and fittings and things like that and timbers, but also like really cool things like textile and basketry mm. and things like that. So you get to see a lot of quite, you know, relatively rare material so that's quite nice to see that surviving and be able to sort of stabilise that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's just quite satisfying. Yeah, Because that's the kind of thing that survives very well somewhere like Egypt, where you might get yes. textiles that are several thousand years old. But obviously in northern Europe, the only way these things are going to survive, as you said, is if they're in waterlogged anoxic environments. Yes. What's the most exciting thing you've worked on? Well, I do recall treating uh, a Roman basket. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, that's quite cool to have that come through. Not in particularly good condition, but it's sort of squashed and looking a little bit fragmentary, but still it's there and it was quite clearly proper basketry. And that was really quite lovely. I've also had a group of leather objects and there were lots and lots of leather shoe fragments, but there was also a piece of what was clearly a book cover or on the way to be. Mm. So it was a sheet, a small sheet of leather with a, with a sort of shape of a book incised into it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was really lovely to see uh, as part of that leather collection, um, just quite unusual. Obviously, we get a lot of other things like bowls and, and fittings like that, but those really rare items, they are quite fun. So could you talk me through what might happen to these things after they're excavated? Are you in there from the very start? Are you involved in the process of actually getting them out of the ground, keeping them wet and so on until they get to the lab? Or? Yeah. I mean, it depends, really. In some cases, the archaeologists are quite happy to lift things themselves, and then they, they come to us on boards or in tanks or whatever, and straight from site. Other times, we will go out and help to lift particularly larger timbers. They often need a bit of a helping hand to get them out of the ground, mm-hmm. and things like log boats and that kind of thing need a sort of specialist advice to help lift those. But a lot of the time, we will get stuff coming through to us just in plastic boxes, you know, wrapped in plastic or or in bags and they'll still have the dirt on them you know they'll still be quite soggy and dirty looking so for example if you've got a lot of leather and um, you'll get them in in bags and you'll get them out of the bags and your first job is basically to clean them to clean the soil off them and get them into a state where they can be assessed and looked at and so you can see what you've got basically and that's quite fun to do you know when you've got uh, shoe soles 
and belts and straps and things like that because you you know it's it's quite satisfying to get get them cleaned up and looking a bit better so that's the first thing and then we would do an assessment of what we've got and record everything and then normally things are sent through to us for treatment to bring it to dry storage so we will normally take all of our leather and batch treat them Mm -hmm. with a pre-treatment before they then get freeze-dried so for leather we we tend to use a solution of glycerol in water as a sort of pre-treatment agent Mm -hmm. and then we'll freeze-dry them after that that's kind of the leather side of things with the timbers and the wood the same again we we really do need to get them cleaned up first and then we will again assess them we have as part of our team we have a wood technologist with us who can look at our wood items and tell us what we've got how things have been converted what objects they are and what species of wood they are and so we'll have an assessment done on them and then after that, you'd make a decision about whether an object is going to go through for the next stage of treatment, whether it's going to be conserved. And then you would look at doing a treatment with polyethylene glycol, which is the sort of standard treatment in, in Northern Europe for dealing with waterlogged wood. Again, that's a sort of fairly standard procedure, but you have to kind of work out how much PEG you're going to use and uh, how long it's going to take. And then again, you will freeze dry. That's that's how we treat wood as a standard treatment. So that's the kind of basic way of dealing with the waterlogged side. And the glycerol and the peg are introduced to these materials to replace the water that is originally in them. That's right. Yeah. As the material sits in the ground, the material is breaking down and deteriorating. The water is replacing some of the parts of the cell within the material. So what you get is it may look very nice as it's wet and it's sitting in its burial conditions. But as soon as you start to dry it out, the water would would come out and the, uh, the cells would start to collapse. So what we're trying to do is mitigate that by replacing that water with some kind of scaffolding, if you will. Yes. <laughs> and that's exactly what the peg and glitter will do, yeah. I've seen photos of things that have been freeze-dried without that happening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <And> it's... <laughs> For some things, you know, they actually are okay, but the majority of the time that's not the case. Yeah, you really do need to replace that water. Yeah. What can you expect in terms of results after this sort of treatment? What kind of objects are you left with? What do they look like? How is the material different? Well, if we start with the leather first, it's usually quite effective. I mean, it, it depends on actually a lot on the condition of the material to start with. So if the leather's been in an environment where the water table or the, or the waterlogging has been intermittent, you know, so where it dries out, then gets re-waterlogged, dries out, re-waterlogged, the leather might actually be in quite bad condition to start with. And then there's, you know, there's, there's very little you can do with a pre-treatment. You've just got to do the best you can, as it were. But in most cases, they'll come through the freeze-drying process afterwards. They'll look sort of, for want of a better word, leather-like. You know, they will still have that leathery look yeah. and they'll still be flexible and and the shrinkage should be minimal. There will be some, but minimal. And so what you'll get is a leather object that looks uh, that's changed very little in terms of how it looks. Uh, hopefully, that's that's the plan anyway. Mm-hmm. And then for the wood, it's the same thing. At the end of the process, and and with the freeze drying process, certainly you do get wood objects that look really quite nice. 
the surface looks woody. Uh, it's not particularly dark. It hasn't got too much peg in there, so it's not too heavy and dense. You mm-hmm. get the treatment right. You should have, again, very little shrinkage, very little in terms of cracking or whatever. But again, it depends very much on the condition of the wood to start with, etc. But yeah, it's, those treatments have been in use for quite some time now and, and has stood the test of time. They are very effective. And they're also good in terms of the aging of the treatment. So peg treated wood that was treated 20, 30, 40 years ago still look good today. Mm-hmm. You can expect good results with these treatments. Yes. So, for example, the timbers we have on display here from Coppergate. So these were dug up um, late 60s, 70s, 80s, and they were treated with polyethylene glycol. They were actually treated at the time when we weren't freeze drying. So they were actually taken up to a sort of, I think, uh, 80 or 90 percent polyethylene glycol mm-hmm. and then carefully air dried and they're still on display they've been on open display in Yorvik since it opened they're still looking very good also uh, for example timbers from the from the Roskiller ships over in Denmark they were treated with peg as well and again they look they're still looking very good again been on open display for a long long time mm-hmm. So yeah, good good results. The only the slight snag, for example, is chemical reactions can take place if there's a lot of iron and sulfur within the woods. And that's what the Vasa is suffering from, that sulfur mm-hmm. problem that has been well reported with the Vasa. So yeah, you have to be a little bit careful. Are there any alternatives to PEG that people have tried? Yeah, there are. There's been quite a lot of work on different treatments. So, for example, acetone rosin is a a treatment that has been used, especially for composite items, which need to go through. So if you've got metals and wood or other non-organics together, you might consider using something like acetone rosin. Or there's a a treatment they use in Europe. Um, In Italy, they've used a lot called caramine. Um, And I think there's some Scandinavian labs that use that as well. But these are all treatments that re- that require the wood to be dried and then consolidated. So it's a bit risky because you're using a solvent to remove the water before you've impregnated the wood with a consolidant. So yeah. you have to be very careful that you you know you've got exactly the right consolidant going in afterwards because it, it can be very very fragile. And obviously, with larger items like ships and boats and things, it can be very tricky to dry things in solvents for health and safety reasons and stuff like that. So it's um, I don't think we've come across as good a treatment as PEG for wood as of yet. PEG is still really the main agent that would be used for wood, especially for bigger timbers. Are there any downsides to using PEG? You mentioned the weight. Yeah, another downside is the cost. Uh, it, ca- it can be very expensive. For example, I think some, one of the largest producer of PEG has announced this year that they've stopped producing it. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> which is a, a bit of a shock to all of us who use it on a regular basis yeah. because suddenly, you know, we, we're faced with um, whether the cost's going to do, are we suddenly going to see a spike in costs and, uh, and also where are we going to get it from? So it's going to be problematic, I think. Mm. But we should still be able to find it you know, from other suppliers, but it might it might turn out to be quite tricky, <laughs> which is not great. <laughs> so yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. But it can be expensive, yeah, especially if you've got lots of large timbers going through. You're talking about tons of peg in any one go, and mm. the costs can go through the roof. 
But in general, it's very good because it's non-toxic and it's in terms of conservation, you know, there's a, there's very few downsides to it. Yeah. Apart from this, well, I'm mentioning this sulfur problem, which it can exacerbate. Don't know if we can. Yeah. Don't know if we can find a, a solution that's quite as good as PEG. Yeah, I, I guess people would have. We would have tried. started using it. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, exactly. as you said, it's been in use for <laughs> yeah. such a long time. Yeah, um, and I guess because it's been in use for such a long time, we've got a very good idea, as you said how it ages exactly we, we kind of know what to expect when we're treating objects using it we're very happy to use it because we know what the outcome will be and that's invaluable really in terms of as you know as conservators that's kind of yeah. <laughs> that's a very makes life a lot easier for us <laughs> one thing I was thinking when you were describing all of this process is how interventive it is Yes. You're talking about a total impregnation of this yeah. wood and then drying it out to a state that it hasn't been in potentially for hundreds or even thousands of years and so on. Yeah. Have you considered leaving it in the ground? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's one of, one of the big issues is that these days, especially on, on the commercial side, because it takes so long and it's such a big um, as you say, very interventive uh, mm. situation. It does cost a lot of money to bring, say, a large timber from the ground to dry storage. And people are, especially developers, they're thinking carefully about whether to leave something in situ or bring it up. And most of the stuff we come across in waterlogged conditions that you either know that it's there beforehand and so you can mitigate against the cost and you can say, okay, we're likely to come across waterlogged uh, material on this site. Yeah. And you can then think beforehand part of the sort of um, excavation strategy, have funding available to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Or, you, you know, you might come across something and it's really quite a surprise, in which case, you know, you you have to sort of um, deal with it at the time, you know, a bit like the Newport ship, you know, mm. they didn't realise that it was there and, you know, it became quite problematic to find funding to actually get it treated and breeze dried. So I think had they known it was there, I think they probably would have decided to build um, the, the art centre in a different place, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> considering the costs that were involved to get the ship treated. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of the time, if you are going to come across a large amount of waterlog timber, people do very much think about whether to preserve it in situ or to remove it. How successively can these things be preserved in situ? That's another really big issue. It's so difficult because obviously if you've already disturbed a waterlogged environment by putting piles down or making boreholes or whatever, Mm -hmm. then you can't guarantee that this particular site is going to stay waterlogged so you have to then do a lot of monitoring and um, and make sure that you're keeping an eye on the levels of waterlogging so it's a big issue and questions can be raised about whether it's possible to keep something waterlogged if you've already disturbed it and anoxic i guess as well and anoxic exactly once you've let air in or you let water start flowing within the system then um yeah, you may end up with a situation where you can't guarantee that the area is going to be kept waterlogged and anoxic. So, yeah, it's a problem, definitely. Yeah, so there's juxtaposition between getting something out of the ground, the cost of treating it versus making sure that you can keep it stable in the ground. But, I mean, that, that's the basics of it. You know, yeah. it makes it sound very easy. That You know, that it's not easy, uh, waterlogged organics. You know, they can be tricky and it's not an exact science. 
there's a lot of science that we can apply to the treatments, but every object's different and has got its own issues. And although we know the kind of regimes we use to treat things with PEG, we do have to decide on an object-by-object basis what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Does it need further support? Does it need special tanks? Are we looking at adding biocides to control mold growth? There's a whole plethora of different decisions that you have to make for each object. So it isn't just, you know, popping everything into a tank and adding a bit of a peg and hoping for the best. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, you know there, there is there is more to it than that. But that's the basic treatment that we're using. And uh, everyone's got their own ways of tweaking those treatments to their own experience, if you will. You know, obviously, uh, any specific questions, I'm more than happy to be emailed and people can ask me anything they want. I'm very happy to share any experiences I've had. Okay. And what's your email address? So M for mother, F for foxtrot, E-L-T-E-R at yorkat.co.uk. Brilliant. Well, thanks. I'm sure lots of people will want to get in touch with you and uh, discuss soggy stuff with you. Be in on now. <laughs> very happy very happy to chat yeah (laughs) well Max Felter thanks very much for talking to the C word today it was a pleasure so something that I feel like is really coming out um is the sort of consistency of different treatment types and different treatment processes when it comes to waterlogged material what do you feel Johanna about about that um because obviously we, we've we've talked a lot about peg um and we've mentioned um glycerol are there yeah. is this is this a sort of that's how we're going in waterlogged materials conservation or are there new developments in the area yeah so i don't know how much time i have to go into the whole issue with sulfuric acid in the vasa we're at the risk of not getting this completely right but in the vasa there's a lot of sulfur that kind of got into the wood cells during burial and there's a lot of iron that's diffused into the wood cells and once that was exposed to air at the lifting it's started oxidizing slowly and it sort of started creating different acids mainly sulfuric acid i suppose which manifested itself in yellow white salty blotches on the ship during a particularly wet summer in the 2000s when you have peg in that material there's like lower molecular peg chains the peg 400s for example they they don't dry they stay liquid at room temperature oh right of course and kind of facilitates moisture movements which uh, enables these chemical reactions so following that the vasa museum installed a pretty effective climate control system which keeps the temperature at a steady like 18 degrees celsius and the humidity at 55 percent the relative humidity at 55 percent constantly through the year wow so this is one of those situations where what we were discussing last season about um environmental controls being uh, you know oh yeah we can just be more fluid with them i'm guessing that this situation you just can't you just it has to be 55 and that's it Exactly. So in the situation with waterlogged wood, that, uh, yeah, waterlogged wood with iron and sulfur in, 
you kind of have to do that or it'll yeah. start breaking oh. down and I there do, will be I acid remember, creation. I do remember being a big issue when we were looking at the Newport stuff that, oh, how much iron content do you think is in this and that sort of thing. I remember that being a big, mm. a big discussion point and that kind of explains why that's really important. It must be an interesting thing to mitigate on such a large scale mm-hmm. as an entire ship yeah. has already been treated. Exactly. So the Mary Rose has a similar climate control and keeps a similar climate around the ship. Mm. And both these, it's, it's a huge cost to run these climate controls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So when I worked in Denmark, they didn't use PEG 400 for impregnating wood. They used only PEG 2000 because it's uh, solid at room temperature uh-huh. and should limit these kinds of reactions. Uh-huh. Also, you might not have this problem in wood that's been buried in a like when there's no no iron present because the iron tends to come from nails equipment on the ships. Yeah, sure. Uh, simply iron objects in proximity during burial, so it might be a problem. It might not. I know, like sucrose treatments that you mentioned are. I think at least considered a possibility in like the Caribbean, mm. for example, as far as I understand. Per Hoffman has written a book called Conservation of Archaeological Shipwrecks, I think, which is a pretty good book that mentions several different options for treating larger archaeological vessels. And for example, the Karamin treatment, there are, there are several other options. And I think PEG is most frequently used in Northern Europe. Mm. And then in the rest of the world, I'm not sure it's the standard. So maybe that's something that listeners can um, help us with. If you know that something else is used in your area of the world, I would, we would love to hear about yeah, it. Yeah, that would be so interesting. Yeah, just like how do you treat waterlogged materials in your area of the world? That would be fabulous to hear. So speaking of shipwrecks, we actually have another interview uh, with Kim from MSDS Marine, um, who will talk not only about huge things, but also about the art of mudlarking and engaging with the public. So let's listen to that now. Today we're talking about wet, brown, soggy stuff, and I'm here with Kim. Um, Kim, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Hi, my name's Kim, and I'm an archaeological conservator with MSDS Marine. I am currently the project conservator for the Rosewijk excavation and am based at Fort Cumberland Historic England's conservation facility. That is fabulous. Uh, Where did you study, Kim? I did my undergrad in Florida in the U.S. in art history, actually. Um, So I did all of my sciences at the same time. I I feel like that's a very far world away from the kind of stuff that you now deal with <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, definitely so it's um i mean it all kind of makes sense but um i think like most conservators i didn't come to the specialism from a strictly linear path um so i kind of first started with art history when i was an undergrad and absolutely loved it i had some really amazing professors at the university of central florida shout out to them and I just knew once I graduated that my heart was very much with the humanities. So after speaking with one of my art history professors, she said, you know, conservation, no doubt. You have all of the coursework. You have the personality for it. Look into it. So I did. And I started looking into different options. And I knew, of course, the immediate paper, paintings, object selection that I think people kind of find very quickly. And 
I was really intrigued by archaeology um, within the conservation discipline. It was something I'd always been interested in. I had done a little bit of archaeology research during my undergrad as well and kind of started Googling just for internships. And being in Florida, there wasn't a whole lot. But my sister lived in Washington, D.C., so I found that, of all things, there, the U.S. Navy has an underwater archaeology branch oh. to protect and monitor their submerged cultural resources. And they had an internship. And I just initially remember thinking, this cannot be a thing. Underwater <laughs> archaeology and conservation. <laughs> um, it just seemed a little too good to be true. But I spoke to a conservator. And found out that it was indeed legitimate. It was a real thing. Um, that was kind of my first foray into conservation was at that internship. That's fabulous. Yeah. And it was um, definitely love at first sight. Oh, that's so good. It's like you found the perfect Venn diagram somehow. <laughs> when I met you in December, you were giving, yes. a, giving a talk about uh, archaeological finds made by mudlarkers. Now, yes. um, I don't expect people who are listening to this to be intimately familiar with, with what mudlarkers are. So would you care yes. to explain it? Well, in this context, I was working with London Mudlark. So they work on the foreshore of the Thames. And um, it's an intertidal area. So as the tide recedes, people, you know, start seeking in the mud. Um, and a lot of them look for finds by sight. And um, it's a way for them to engage with their history and the archaeology of London and Britain, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it really is. Um, I love the notion that you can go out and just find stuff. I was so intrigued by it as an idea. And, you know, especially coming from the US, um, it's just a completely different approach and perspective here. And that was something that I really wanted to investigate more. I understand that you did a project on this with trying to engage these kind of amateur archaeologists. I did, yep. So when I was at Cardiff University doing my postgraduate, um, Jane Henderson, of course, had approached me because she knew that I was interested in specializing in marine artifacts. And it was something I was still a little on the fence about at the time because, you know, as you've discussed in your show many times, specializing can sometimes be a double-edged sword. Yeah. So she had approached me with this project because it was kind of centered around um, a waterlogged leather shoe that needed to be treated. It was also a way to investigate um, the legislation around mudlarking and fines found by members of the public, but also the ethics of the profession, and as well as engaging with volunteers and members of the public, mm. um, which was something that I was really interested in. When I started this project two and a half years ago, I remember being a little intimidated at the beginning, just because of kind of, you know, as we discussed, the stigma associated in the U.S. with amateur archaeology and, mm. you know, activities of the sort. And I was definitely a bit intimidated, but it was really interesting to get to speak with Laura Maclem, who is the head of London Mudlark, and just have an open dialogue and really relaxed conversations about her interest in conservation and what she expected from the profession and speak with other professionals as well in archaeology and conservation and get their opinions and, you know, realize how deep-rooted work by members of the public is in this country and how long-standing our relationship of, you know, archaeologists and conservators with members of the public. And it was something that I was just really blown away by, just everyone's general positivity and excitement by the subject. Yeah, I mean, it, 
I, I was really fascinated by what a strong need these guys uh, had for mm. for being able to connect with conservatives and how that was very difficult for them, like finding conservatives, how you actually approach us and what kind of advice we Definitely. are willing to give and stuff. And I thought it was just such an interesting angle to it. You know, I think this is something that we do have to work on just as a profession, just Definitely. to uh, be more approachable and be easier to find I was really intrigued by the entire thing and really happy to see that kind of project where there was so much collaboration and so much openness. It was really good. Yeah. And, you know, it was also something that I kind of just expected. I don't know, maybe my expectations weren't appropriately placed, you know, but everyone was so interested in knowing so much more about conservation and the specifics. And I think there is very much that perception that everyone is treating things with olive oil or brasso or whatnot, yeah. you know, and, you know, make no mistake, there are still plenty of conversations like that taking place, you know, on different forums for mudlarkers and amateur archaeologists. But they're so interested in learning the technical side of things, you know, and with so much exposure for public and community archaeology and different programs like that. People want to know more about conservation, too. And I think it's a really exciting opportunity to be able to share that more with members of the public and be a bit more open about our profession and how much we love it and also the technical side of it. Absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, there are little kid mudlarkers out there. And I think there's a real possibility that some of them want to grow up to be conservatives. So, you know engage with them like make them enthusiastic and aware that this is a profession that's you know something they can join um if, if when it's i had something they conducted like. a survey as part of the project um there was at least one possibly two respondents that were actually conservators that mudlarked themselves because oh. <laughs> just found it such an intriguing idea yeah no absolutely which I was really sweet but yeah so that's that that was that project which was really really interesting but could you tell us a bit more about what you do now as part of your work at uh, MSDS Marine. Yes. Um, so obviously I said I'm the project conservator for the Rosewike excavation. Which is kind of huge. <laughs> which is kind of huge. Um, <laughs> it is a project which is organized and managed by the RCE, which is the Dutch Cultural Heritage Agency. Mm-hmm. And they are um, funding the excavations for two years, which took place in 2017 and 18. MSDS Marine are the UK project managers for the excavations, and I work for them. And we are based at Historic England in Fort Cumberland, where we are overseen by the lovely Angela Middleton, who is the conservation manager for the project. Mm. So there's a lot of um, interagency cooperation, shall we say, which is a really unique aspect as well. Oh, that's fabulous. So um, what, if anything, can you tell me about the project? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we do have um, a Twitter account, so please feel free to follow us there at Rosewag1740. We do share plenty of updates. Yeah, all of the material that we have currently at Fort Cumberland was excavated in 2017 and 18 by a UK and Dutch excavation team. And we've been, myself and my colleague, Nicole, who is also with MSDS, she's in archaeologist. We are kind of working through the artifacts that we've received at Fort Cumberland and assessing all of the material and starting active treatment of quite a few of those. I'm guessing the treatment there is, you know, freeze drying things and that sort of thing or? 
If they're organics, yes. Yeah. But soggy brown stuff doesn't exactly stop at organics. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually, one of the first things that we do in the post-ex phase is to x-ray um, a large number of our artifacts, because not only does it form an important part of the archive of artifacts right after they've been excavated, but it's an important investigative tool for us on our end. So it's um, it's an important first step before we start moving forward with the more interventive side of the treatment. Is there uh, um, anything else that you would like to add about your project? Um, anything we have to follow, look at, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the project itself, we're now um, through the assessment phase of the post-excavation of the Roswick, and we are now full steam ahead on active treatments. So keep an eye out for kind of fun updates, information on material identification of artifacts, um, reveal of artifacts coming out of concretions. So you might have seen the big news. Um, one of the concretions that I've been working on for quite a while, um, it's a bit of a difficult one in terms of composite materials and the nature of the concretion itself. But the first artifact came out of it and we could see on the x-ray that it looked almost like a weight kind of in shape and it was iron and lead composite and right on the top was stamped with the date 1739 and the symbol of Amsterdam which is three x's and three roman numerals possibly indicating the weight of the artifact and then the next two that came out was um, possibly a two pounder and then a one pounder so we now have a set oh. of three weights from that concretion. Oh, that's fabulous. That must have felt yeah. really good. <laughs> it is. We also, on the MSDS side of things, as I mentioned with the Mudlark project, mm. when I first got involved with that, um, you know, I kind of expected once I wrapped it up, all right, you know, that's lovely. That was really informative, but I probably won't have much to do with it again. But, you know, as soon as I joined MSDS, we worked so closely with volunteers and members of the public. You know, I mean, we've offered courses to members of the public on the Roseweig artifact, um, which has been supported by RCE. And that's been really exciting to not only be able to work with members of the public, but also for them to hold artifacts like this, yeah. which is such a once in a lifetime experience for us and them, you yeah. know, and for them to apply, you know, a theoretical understanding of conservation to something that they're looking at. That is so fabulous. And it's so inspiring, I would say. Definitely. You know, and we've done intertidal survey days with volunteers um, oh, one other thing I forgot to add. MS, MSDS does offer us two weeks of volunteering time Ooh. every year, which is so amazing and I think really unique amongst um, institutions. Yeah. So I'm very much looking forward to taking advantage of that. And we have a great working relationship with the Nautical Archaeology Society. And so we offer courses through them many times. Um, we are now working with them. Allison James, my wonderful supervisor, is leading a project with Historic England and the NAS to recruit the next wave of licensees who are responsible to help um, monitor and manage the protected rec sites. So there's a bit of a problem with the aging licensees and not having um, younger you know, men and women divers to take over. So she is currently running a pilot project with the other two organizations to try and bridge that gap, which is very interesting. So if there are any listening divers that want to get involved, 
um, there's a blog post on our website. And please contact Allison. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today, Kim. I've really appreciated it. No problem it. at all. I am so interested in the idea of mudlarking. Um, and I know everyone <laughs> always goes on about London and it's so, oh, everyone, you know, there's other things in the UK as well kind of thing. But the idea that there's just so much history in the Thames is just amazing to me. I yeah, find it really, true. really interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm also really interested in um, that it's not just organic materials thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm so interested in what people are doing with like waterlogged metals and, you know, can you waterlog a metal? I, I mean, I'm not... I'm they can certainly of, be wet and soft. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, so I'd be really interested to hear what you, your thoughts are on that. I personally really enjoyed hearing the side where how much engagement with the public there was, both for the shipwreck project and for the mudlarking, because I really enjoyed that they were really trying to uh, get collaboration between conservators and mudlockers, which I really loved. I thought that was really, really nice. And in, in fact, speaking of things going on in London, we actually have an interview from Museum of London as well. So uh, maybe now is a good time to listen to that. I'm here today with Louisa. Louisa, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Luisa Duarte. I'm a... I'm originally from Argentina. I studied an archaeology degree at Durham, and then I did uh, two masters, the two masters at UCL for conservation. After that, I worked very briefly at the Imperial War Museum, and then I moved to an archaeological unit, uh, MOLA, Museum of London Archaeology, quite large unit, digging mostly in London. And uh, last year, I moved to the Museum of London, and now I'm working a bit more with exhibitions rather than with fresh archaeology. Ooh, are you enjoying the change? Yes, a bit of a shock to the system, <laughs> a lot less hands-on archaeology, a bit less objects, but I guess quite a lot of variety, which is always good. It's yeah. good for the soul. So how did you end up working with essentially mushy stuff? <laughs> mushy stuff. Uh, <laughs> lovely, wet, soily brown. It was not my first choice. I must be very honest here. As a wide-eyed archaeologist and early conservator, I had my hopes on glass and ceramics. Oh. And then I think it was just the roll of the die. I started working for Mola and um, London is lovely and wet and there's a lot of um, wet archaeology and a lot of uh, soggy stuff. So yeah, there is unfortunately just more of the brown soggy stuff. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it needs a lot more work as well. Uh, mm. I think there's this idea when you start training that everything's going to be lovely and putting beautiful ceramics together it's not a reality is it there's <laughs> no. not that many um, no not really <laughs> <laughs> there's not that many ceramics that need putting together there's a lot of bits of leather that need drying and glycerolling so mm. so uh, is that the sort of thing that you do get to deal with at museum of london like a lot of uh, wet leather that sort of thing Mostly, it's a lot of wet leather and a lot of wet wood. Very small sized things. We don't work with anything the size of the Mary Rose or anything like that. Mm. All quite a lot of bench sized things. Whenever we do get something really big, we send it off promptly to York or the Mary Rose. Yeah. <laughs> just because we can't, we just don't have our freeze dryer, just not large enough yeah. to handle that sort of things. Mostly run of mill Roman leather and low shoes, low shoe soles. 
a few sites we just started weighing the leather because it was impossible to understand oh you know quantify God. the number of fragments we just couldn't deal with it it was just by by tonnage rather than by <laughs> A couple of years ago, 2016, I think, 2015, we had a huge site, Bloomberg, but all back of free house. And I treated, you know, hundreds of writing tablets. There's 410 writing tablets, Roman writing tablets. Oh, and wow. I was just sitting down and just doing them. A huge amount of information came off them and very, very worthy. But at some point you think, if I see another writing tablet... <laughs> <laughs> And then you do, and then you sit down and do it again. <laughs> and I would do it all over again. I love them. Actually, I just grew to to really love the wet stuff. Oh, that's good. I was going to ask what's the uh, what you, if you've come around and if you actually like it now. <laughs> I think when you when you see what happens to all of these objects if they're not dried properly, when mm. you realize the huge amount of damage created by the Im- improper drying. And then you think, this is essential, what I'm doing right now. You can really feel the need for it, much more than when you're putting a pretty pot together. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, it's nicer now and it looks good, but the shirts were always going to be fine if I just yeah. left them in, in, in the store. Point. <laughs> and nothing was ever going to happen to that. But if I don't dry this piece of wood, this object properly, then there's not going to be anything left afterwards for anybody to look at ever mm. again. So, so, you, so your does, impact it, is kind of huge on the object. Yes. So it does mean that we're intrinsic to the whole process yeah. and you really feel that you're doing something that will go on for generations. And it's also a lot of pressure then because you think, I think wet, the conservation of wet materials, organic materials in particular, it's one of those that we study a lot. So this year I'm going to Warm, um, one of oh, our yeah, big conferences for wet. Yeah, yeah, five days of wet soggy stuff. <laughs> yes, it's going to be <laughs> great. We're so excited already. I think we're so aware that quite a lot of the stuff we've done and the lot of stuff we're doing right now mm. is not long term. We know that polyethylene glycopeg is. not it's not the solution. We know that sort of stuff that we've done in the past has created a huge amount of damage. Mm. And, you know, we're really in touch with it, how conservation can can be a problem later on for yeah. a lot of the things. We're trying to do the best we can with the tools we have at the moment. Yeah. And then sometimes it just doesn't go our way. So it's, it's a weird balance balancing act that you know you have to do something because you can't not leave it as it is. Yeah. But then whatever you might be doing right now, 20 years down the line, it might be someone that's banging their head against the wall and saying, what the hell were they doing? Yeah, but then, I suppose that's the, that, that's the crazy thing about conservation, isn't it? That we yeah. end up, we, we all we can do is work with what we know today. And ultimately, in 50 years time, it's almost definitely going to swear about it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, we have to try to be kind to the people that came before us. Yeah, uh, they were doing the best they could, and hope that people will equally think well of us. Yes, <laughs> in in a, in a few decades. Okay, say that you've got a piece of leather, like standard leather that you you've got in another Roman shoe. What does its, its typical kind of life on your bench look like? So I think the Museum of London um, has its own way of dealing with things. And 
I think quite a lot of um, the way that we treat things has uh, is taught by UCL as well. But I know there's some other people out there that treat things differently. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the first thing that happens to something that comes off the ground archaeologically, uh, it gets um, lightly washed by processor, mm-hmm. which is an archaeologist an archaeological processor, which will not be trained, a trained conservator. They often get quite a lot of training by us. Now we try to guide them in the best way. But when you have so much leather, like the amounts that we're getting out of London, we cannot, we could not deal with that in the first instance. They sort it through a light cleaning and record it. And then it comes to the lab. Whereas uh, given a fine clean with uh, sponges, brushes and running water, and then it gets um, immersed in a 20% glycerol for three days, 20% in, in water. It's like a nice spa day. Uh, afterwards, yeah, nice and moist and um, flexible. So and after that, it goes to the freezer uh, for a couple of days until it's nice and solid. And then it goes into the freeze-dryer freeze after that, uh, where it gets dried until, by weighing, you figure out when it's finished, mm. the process of freeze-drying. Uh, we've had very good results for it, uh, for that with that technique for maybe 35, 40 years now. Yeah. It's been a while, way by when they, they did all the, the nitty-gritty research. Our leather still still in really good condition uh, after all this time. So we've done a few. We've gone back and looked at some of the leather treated in the 80s and the 70s and seen how how fed after all this time, and it's looking good. Oh, excellent! So we're lucky. We're lucky that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, what would you say your favorite thing is about working with brown soggy stuff? I think as, as I was saying earlier, my favorite thing is being able to see the impact I've had on an object and um, the, the fact that drying them properly would mean that they will remain in a good state for a lot longer than if they were just left to dry on their own. I think that's that's my favourite thing. As also, I think, organic materials. We, we use a lot of them in our everyday lives and sometimes they're not very well represented in the archaeological record. So you can almost feel really close to the people that were using some of the things. Shoes take the shape of a foot and they wear in the way that you walk. Uh, And that that's unchanged. You can see the person. In some cases we see bunions and things like that, (laughs) sort of shaped in the sole. So you can you can look at them and you can think, well, this was worn by a person and they walked funny or they you know, they just can just see them almost. Oh, that's fabulous. can imagine them. So it's, it's quite touching sometimes. Yeah, that is really fabulous. We get little bits of leather that they're not that important, but they, someone's been, you know, trying out a little decoration or they've been practicing something or yeah. then you can just see them that way. They just had a little go or something and they, that they were going to use later on. Yeah. So it's like almost little insignificant scraps that have been thrown away. It's uh, really like human. You can see a hand. Yeah, very, very human. So I guess this is, I think this is the reason for a lot of us went into conservation to start with, to to see the minutiae of human life and be able to have it right there and then. So it's it's quite lovely. Speaking of uh, human life, uh, I saw there was a very interesting um, article in The Guardian recently about a toilet seat. (laughs) My five minutes of fame. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, at the moment I'm working on a triple toilet seat um, Mm. from the medieval period. And everybody loves it because everybody loves 
toilet humor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and even though it's just a plank of wood with a few holes in it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just people are going crazy over it. So, so is that is that going on display or? Um... So that toilet is going on display in an upcoming uh, exhibition called uh, Secret Rivers, opening in May at Museum of uh, London Docklands. And people, and we have a replica as well, where people are going to be able to sit down and take coffee <laughs> themselves, sitting down in the toilet seat. That's uh, perfect. <laughs> yes, it's going to be really fun. I already had a go, and uh, and you get super giddy when <laughs> <laughs> sitting in that toilet, especially have a couple of friends with you, uh, and then you realize how how intimate some of this body functions were in the past people just did not seem to have the same sort of hang-ups we do at the moment uh, yeah there didn't seem to sitting... be an awful lot of room on that plank <laughs> no, no no it's pretty much shoulder to shoulder yeah. and it's quite strange <laughs> but this one was uh this object was treated uh, in the early 90s <sighs> So, uh, but I was left pretty much straight out of the freeze dryer and nothing had been done with it. So now I'm trying just to give it a little, little pick me up, uh, oh. make it look, take it all the a peg off that had been left on the surface, looking a bit more even in color, filling out a little, few little holes, sticking a few bits together because it's quite fragmentary. And so hopefully I'll look all nice and, well, can't say shiny really because it'll still be brown. Yeah. <laughs> wood is wood, but yeah. That's wood true. is wood. <laughs> And it's still a plank um, yes. with some holes in it, but hopefully it'll look a bit nicer. So um, if there's anyone out there who's uh, into archaeology but would like to work with wet, soggy stuff, what would what would be your recommendation or advice to them, do you think? I think um, practicality is a big thing. You have to, if you overthink, uh, you will never treat anything. Because <laughs> uh, it can be quite paralyzing sometimes when you see a, a, a big object and you know that their future is in your hands. And uh, sometimes there's no going back once it's dry. Yeah. It's one of the things that we can't really turn back the clock and start over. Sometimes you have to take a few leaps of faith here and there. So you have to, you have to be brave and tackle them, what, the problems one at a time. I think that's probably the, the, biggest, the biggest thing with a with wet wood and wet wet leather. Uh, I think that sounds like a really good piece of advice to conservatives in general. Just uh, be brave and mm. dare to do the thing. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you think about stuff and you think, and at some point you have to say, I've thought about all my options. I've justified all my options and I've justified all my decisions. And now it's time to act. Trust yourself and trust that you know what's best for your object and do it. And that is a fabulous note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Louisa. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. So I'm really, I really liked Louisa's interview as well because she's very honest about how she came to it. Because Johanna, you, you're, you are very sure from the beginning almost and Kim was that you well. and Kim was you're both so sure this is what you wanted to do and uh, Max, <laughs> and, and Max yeah. in the same way that Christina was definitely sure she that's what she didn't want to do and you're very sure Jenny that that's, yes. not what, that's not what you wanted to do I love that that's often how we find ourselves like obviously you've you've had a very sure direction and you've really you've gone to you know the, the best places for it but we so often as conservators find ourselves doing conservation or seeing a side of conservation um, and museums that we didn't expect when we started which I feel I find really kind of heartening 
I think I really enjoyed the the little joys in in working with these sorts of uh, waterlogged organics. So we come full circle. We've kind of talked. We've talked about wood and soggy things of that nature, and also metal work with Kim. And yeah. then again around to how amazing it is to see preserved organics from everyday life through the mudlock. Obviously, there are other ways that things can be waterlogged, such as in bogs and mires and stuff like that as well. Christine, I don't know if you had something on that. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I've seen a lot of that in um, museums in Denmark and so on. Mm. You get things like, uh, well, there's bog bodies, in fact. <laughs> it's not just bodies. In um, I've been to a couple of Danish museums and they've had things like textiles and you can still see the original colours. I mean, obviously, they're not the original colours. They're all basic. <laughs> you can you can find out what colours they were from analysis. The, um, the pattern of the... Yeah. Yeah, and you can, you can see the different patterns made up by different colours because um, even as the colours have changed, the relationship between them that stay the same and so on. So I've seen checked cloaks and things like that, which are really cool. Um, Something I wanted to talk about, one of the uh, coolest things I've seen is something called the Fadden Moor Psalter. The Fadden Moor Psalter is a late 8th century book. So it's over 1,200 years old. And it was found in a peat bog in Tipperary in Ireland in 2006. And because it was in this bog, um, when it was discovered, it was completely waterlogged. Mm. And um, the paper I've read about it, the author describes the texture of the vellum pages as resembling wet lasagna sheets. (laughs) (laughs) However, they could still see some of the writing and they wanted to preserve this for study. Uh, One of the fun things about it is that when it was found, it was wrapped, I think, in an animal skin. And so there are all these kind of questions as well about how it got into the bog and whether it was deliberately buried and the um, article which I will put a link in the show notes to if anybody wants to read it, there's an article in the Journal of the Institute of Conservation and the article says uh, from the outset there was speculation that the manuscript was deliberately concealed in this location in the bog which led, uh, which in turn led to evocative stories of a fleeing monk burying his precious wow. book while being pursued by marauding Vikings, <laughs> such raids being recorded at the monastery in Berlin oh my God. Does it, I mean this sounds like something directly out of an MR James ghost story um, <laughs> did all of the people who found it and removed it uh, mysteriously die <laughs> I think they're probably still alive I don't think any of them woke up to find a figure of a ghostly monk <laughs> in their bedrooms at night or anything like that which is the kind of thing that happens in MR James ghost stories Although if any of you did so, please get um, in touch <laughs> this is a highly unusual object unlike waterlogged timbers and so on and uh, they spent a lot of time and effort working out what was the best way to dry and preserve it and if you are able to get access to this article in JIC it's brilliant because one of the um, figures shows their experiment with drying a tiny fragment air drying they just just untreated just get it wet put it on a piece of melanex draw around the outline and let it air dry (laughs) and it's about a quarter of its original size oh. <laughs> by the time it's oh air dried and it makes you realize just how much of the original material has now been replaced with yeah. water and what happens when you allow this kind of uncontrolled drying so their real consideration right from the start was how to remove the water in a safe way they do actually mention and the reason this is interesting is because the treatment was being carried out by book and manuscript conservators who don't normally see this kind of material and they do mention that they looked at the archaeological conservation literature and considered things like PEG or glycerol. Mm. But they ruled that out because 
they were concerned about contaminating the material for future analysis. And they were also worried about the possible long-term effects of these materials on pigments and inks. Mm. And interestingly, I'm thinking about things like iron gall inks and what we've been saying earlier about the interactions between iron and peg, for example. And I think that probably is actually quite a... Uh, legitimate concern. So they knew right from the start that they wanted to dewater these waterlogged things and take the water out, but they didn't want to replace the water with PEG or glycerol. They were trying to remove the water and then safely freeze dry or safely dry it. So what they did in the end was remove it with solvents and um, do a solvent exchange thing where you can put your waterlogged material into a solvent that is miscible with water, like acetone or IMS, and then slowly the water and and you put it in baths of increasing concentration and slowly the uh, water in the object is replaced with IMS or acetone which can then evaporate slowly and be dried in a more controlled way and in the end they used IMS I think for dewatering it and then they dried it in a vacuum machine Um, so they sandwiched the pieces of a piece of vellum was placed between two sheets of bondina to support it while it was in the solvent bath and then when it came out the bits of bondina at the top and bottom were um, replaced with several layers of cotton blotting paper to soak it up and then it was put in a bag and put in a vacuum machine and that slowly sucked the water out which went into the blotters but because it was in the blotters and in a vacuum machine it didn't distort or shrink or buckle in the way that it might have done if you just put it in a freeze dryer and at the end of this they ended up with pages that were kind of dark brown color but where you can read the writing which I think is absolutely incredible I say pages obviously they're quite fragmentary but you know the fact that you can get this completely tragic object (laughs) a 1200 year old book in a bulk (laughs) that's completely saturated and still managed to end up with something readable at the end I think is amazing so if you do get a chance to get access to JIC and read this article do have a look because I think it's it's an example of amazing conservation treatment it's amazing that's so cool that's wonderful solvent replacement is um, it's been tried on uh, archaeological wood too it's um it just kind of causes a bit more distortion mm. than egg treatment and freeze drying so you basically just replace all the water inside the object with the solvent which uh, creates less surface tension when evaporating mm-hmm. so it doesn't distort the cell walls as much although i don't suppose the cell walls is the problem with leather anyway <laughs> yeah I wonder if it was successful here because we're talking about pages that are very, very thin. And so there's not so far for the solvent to have to come out of the object. Whereas if you're talking about things like wood, then there's the issue of penetration in the first place. And then there's also the issue of getting this stuff out again in a controlled way without it distorting it, like you said. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is easier with things like very thin flat pages which have a large surface area and a small yeah less less yeah, three-dimensional more yeah exactly and then you can keep them flattened and restrained yeah. as they dry yeah oh that's fascinating love it i think it's occasionally used with with archaeological textiles that are also like small and oh thin. yeah that's a good point uh, although my experience with archaeological textiles was in denmark where they block freezing <laughs> you put them in water and freeze them and then freeze dry so they kind of dry in a three-dimensional structure rather than life oh, flat. That is amazing. That is amazing. Really nice. I love how I've incredibly animatedly excited you got about that. It's whenever anyone brings up textiles, Chloe goes nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It was, I mean, actually, I should pretend that, yes, it, it is my deep 
deep-seated passion for textiles i was just thinking of like almost comic book freeze block <laughs> blocks of ice with things inside them to hold their shape oh i see okay it yeah. was the textiles i'm fascinated by textiles okay that's yeah what it is. absolutely yeah. that's fine okay that's fantastic okay uh, i have one more thing to ask you oh, yeah. johanna um have you got an object that you've treated that sticks in your mind as being particularly interesting or special or unique in some way I never personally treated this object, but I found it when we were, well, I didn't find it. It was in a batch of shoes I was meant to treat. And it was uh, it was a rubber boot, a piece of a rubber boot. And I've just kind of started thinking about how you treat waterlogged rubber. Yes, yes, pretty, that's amazing. Pretty new phenomenon yeah. to me. Oh. <laughs> so it was like a 120-year-old, very early rubber that's boot. That's so cool. What was it? What was it like? What were the qualities of it? Because I mean, I'm particularly interested in. Modern it was materials. like a wet rubber boot. Oh, really? really? <laughs> it's fantastic. That's amazing. So was it? Yeah, was it kind of fragmental? But I don't know what would have happened to it when right. drying, because often uh, kind of the water goes in there, I think, and replaces uh, plasticizers. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so when it dries, then it really crumbles. And uh, as I said, I didn't, uh, I didn't end up staying there for long enough to see what actually mm. happened to this boot. But I know if anyone knows what happened to the boot, we want to know what happened to the boot. <laughs> there is research into treating waterlogged rubber. I, I think at uh, some places in the states, like at the Hunley, which is an early submarine, and the USS Monitor, oh, I think. Yeah. But I haven't kept entirely up to date on what they've ended up doing with rubber objects. Okay, there. so if listeners out there know what you're doing with waterlogged rubber, we want to know. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really interesting. You've you've actually just reminded me that um, sometimes these things are actually quite a lot more modern than the archaeological stuff we tend to think of. Because someone, I think, in the, a year or two above me at the Institute of Archaeology when I was training, had some things that were from a World War One site. Um, where they'd essentially been buried in mud for a hundred years, but those are the same sort of um, things, you know, waterlogged materials. But obviously, you're talking about much more modern materials there. And I, I'm wondering now whether there was thing, uh, whether there were things like rubber involved in that as well. That's so cool. So if you if you're the person that I'm talking about, and I can't remember who you are, <laughs> but <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, let us know. <laughs> Dear Jane, I want to do a master's degree in conservation and the programme I'm interested in requires a bachelor's honours degree. My grades are not as good because I was employed when I attended the course, which left me with restricted time for studying. I have now saved up in order to avoid similar issues. What should I do to convince them to consider me as a suitable candidate? Thanks very much. Egg. Dear Egg, It's interesting that you've asked about this because I think your story represents the journey of a lot of conservators. I think that although some people know they want to be conservators from a very young age and take all the right choices and make all the right decisions, a lot of us find our way to conservation indirectly, perhaps after having sort of tried another career and then suddenly we come across conservation and suddenly everything makes sense. That's what I wanted to do. That's why I did that degree or that science. So I believe that it's not that unusual for people to come to conservation, having perhaps tried something else that they never quite sat right with, that they weren't quite comfortable with. In your case, you say you didn't do well in your first degree, 
because you were also working. And now you're saying you wanted to do conservation and you're so motivated that you've actually saved up the money so that you can not work during your degree. And it shows that sort of increasing clarity that is quite common, I think, in conservatives in their career. So how do you use this to get admissions? I'm not sure that you'll be able to talk your way into every degree in the UK. It will depend a lot on what your bachelor's degree result was um, and where it was from and what university. But I think you should give it a go. I think there's no reason not to try. I think the thing to do is to offer the explanation that you've shared with us on the C word. Explain why perhaps you weren't able to give your, your fullest to your previous degree and explain what you've done since then. If you've got anything that can show, that can evidence your newfound passion and your engagement with conservation, that would really help. So whether you've been volunteering in conservation, whether you've perhaps joined a professional body as a student or you've been attending the conferences, or maybe you've just been reading about conservation or discussing conservation online, or whatever it is that's really made you realise that doing a conservation degree is well worth saving up lots of money and committing yet more of your time and more fees in order to be further trained in order to move into a career. Explain all those things and also explain your academic achievements in other fields. So if you did well at school, make sure that that comes across. And if there was particular aspects of your previous degree in which you did well, make sure you pull that out. Did you do a particularly good paper or project? Was your final dissertation or piece of research um, stronger than other pieces of work? Try to draw out the fact or whether there is parts of your work that could have been seen as an upper second class or a first class piece of work. So in a sense that you can demonstrate that it's that you are capable of doing higher um, the work at the higher levels, even if you weren't able to do that consistently because of your job. If there's anything you've done since, any talks, papers, publications, reviews, anything like that that you could point to as well, that would be great. For a lot of UK education places, there'll be a time gap that will matter. So if you finished your bachelor's degree last year, then it will pay a bigger impact on the decisions for recruitment than if you finished it, say, 10 years ago. So again, the passage of time will help you um, demonstrate an, an engagement. And some universities are allowed to admit students on the grounds that they've got relevant um, professional experience. So I hope that gives you some cause for optimism. I can tell you on a personal note that I got back into university to do a master's degree, having not done particularly well in my first degree. And that was, I believe, on the basis of relevant professional experience. Um, So I know that at least in my case and in other cases I've seen that that has worked. So wishing you the very best of luck. I don't think you've got anything to lose for trying. Be yourself, tell them about your passions and hope that they can see the future conservator shining through in your statement. Good luck. Today I'm reviewing Preserving Vasa by Emma Hocker, a 2018 archetype publication in association with Vasa Museet in Sweden. This book sets out to be accessible, which is something I love, and I quote, The challenge was to present the information a specialist would want, but in a style that anyone with an interest in the subject could understand. Surely that's what we should all aim for in our publications. I just think this is the epitome of what we should be doing with conservation books. It shouldn't be so bogged down in jargon, and I think there's nothing wrong with writing an accessible book. Anyway, let's do a very quick history of the Vasa. She sank on her maiden voyage in 1628 
taking most of her crew with her, and she lay at the bottom of the Stockholm Harbour until 1961, when she she was successfully raised. Conservation and reconstruction took almost 30 years before she was placed on permanent display in a purpose-built museum, which opened in 1990. The book goes into a bit more detail, but in a really engaging and interesting way. The second chapter explains how it came to be so well-preserved at the bottom of a harbour, as well as a bit about uh, wood, uh, the structure of wood, and the agents of decay. Again, this is a really accessible chapter, much like a crash course in material science. The next chapter tells us about the dramatic and ingenious story of how the vessel was lifted in the late 50s to early 60s, as well as the really intense salvage activity that followed. This section reads like a bit of a thriller to a conservator, as I can imagine the pressure people were under a little bit too well. Chapter 4 gives us an insight into the early conservation of the ship as uh, waterlogged wood conservation uh, was still finding its feet. It outlines the problems of water content and iron corrosion and the safe drying methods that were considered. I particularly enjoy a historic footnote about how a company in the 1920s wanted to blow up the wreck uh, and use any wood for uh, making furniture out of. So yeah, thankfully that didn't happen, but I still really enjoy that piece of information. Not only is this a juicy chapter in terms of its frank discussion about the different treatment options, but also because of the honesty uh, regarding much of the politics that was influencing the treatment plan. It's a refreshingly practical chapter which doesn't shy away from critique, but also puts the choices that were made into perspective. Far from a dry treatment report, I'd say this is probably the strongest chapter of the entire book, actually. The next section of the book uh, talks about the different reconstruction processes and the thorough documentation that had to be done before we delve into chapter six, which is where the object conservator in me gets all giddy, because this one's all about the different finds. Wood, textile, rope, leather, horn, metal, glass, even human remains get all get a mention in their own section in this. Uh, and I absolutely relish this chapter. It's a delight to read about the different finds and their challenges and the different solutions that were found at the time. Uh, Not to mention some really, really unique problems like blue bones, for example. There's also an account of the ambitious move to the final museum and how the museum works today. I especially loved that apparently the best footwear for people working on the ship is bowling shoes. But yeah, I really enjoy this, these different accounts of how the museum works today and what the modern considerations are of having a museum like this. And yeah, it's just a really fascinating little insight into what being a museum professional in this location will be like. In the last few chapters, we explore the problems of salts and sulfur, iron content, peg degradation, and how to keep the climate stable around the ship. We also learn a lot more about how the changes are monitored and what sort of support systems are being considered to ensure that the Vasa is around for many, many, many hundreds of years yet. All in all, this is a really well-written book. Sometimes I came across words where I thought, is that Swinglish? By which I mean, is that a mixture of Swedish and English where there isn't a good direct translation? But other than a few niggles like that, which I'm pretty sure only people like me who are bilingual in Swedish and English would even think of. I actually really enjoyed the book. It's written in a really straightforward manner. I wish more conservation books were like this. It's an interesting subject matter, even if you haven't seen the ship yourself. And yeah, it's definitely something for anyone out there who is working with waterlogged materials, stuff from wet archaeological sites. And yeah, a lot of this is about historic treatments, but I don't know. I just think this is a really good general interest book. So yeah, I would recommend this if you do like your shipwrecks and the conservation thereof, essentially. 
This book has 204 pages, loads of beautiful full-color illustrations and photographs. It costs £45 or $95, and it's available from the Archetype website. And we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patrons, Katja and Phoebe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you've been listening to Johanna Sandström, Chloe Ramsey, Christina Rosaic, and me, Jen Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about careering. In the meantime, check out our website at thecwood.show, tweet us at thecwoodpodcast, or simply email us on thecwoodpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. 